When Norman Borlaug arrived in New Delhi, India in 1963, he came face to face with the world's worst enemy, hunger. It was everywhere. People so thin, they looked like living x-rays. Pointed bones pressed against skin without flesh. Ribs so visible that you could count the bones. Children's skulls were as striking as their sullen eyes. But worse than what Borlaug saw was what he heard. Cries, moans, and trucks circling like sharks, carting away malnourished bodies lying lifeless in the streets. India is a third of the size of the United States, yet it's home to more than a billion people. That's more than North and South America combined. The food supply has a hard time keeping up, but in the early 1960s, in the wake of two world wars and the Great Depression, things were particularly dire, and they were about to get worse. The population was already exploding, and it showed no signs of slowing down. Norman Borlaug had seen hunger before. An agronomist, a scientist who studies the cultivation of plants and how they can be genetically altered. He had encountered hunger every day on the streets of Minneapolis while attending the University of Minnesota during the Great Depression. Those heartbreaking images stayed with him over the years and helped give birth to his interest in food production. A calling that led him to join the Rockefeller Foundation's Mexican Hunger Project in 1944. In the areas surrounding Mexico City, he would encounter hunger yet again. But in Mexico, at least, he knew there was something he could do about it. At Cross-Border Solutions, genius isn't narrowly defined by high IQs or Ivy League degrees. Around here, you have to work a little harder to earn the coveted status. Sorry, Harvard. For us, the term genius is about game-changing ideas, limitless imagination, and most importantly, fearless execution. Welcome to Genius Beats Fear, cross-border solutions thought-provoking podcast, where we discuss real-life disruptors who push the envelope so far, they change the way we live. Do these innovators face obstacles, challenges, critics? Of course. But then, genius always beats fear. The goal of the Hunger Project was to help impoverished farmers struggling with low-producing crops in the areas surrounding Mexico City. Borlaug's focus? Wheat a plant that produces rice, barley, cereal grains, not to mention a key ingredient in bread. Wheat is an efficient way to feed the masses. And that's exactly what Borlaug planned to do. His study of forestry and a doctorate in plant pathology at the University of Minnesota was just part of his education. Borlaug developed an understanding of crops growing up on his family farm in Cresco, Iowa, as well as an unrelenting work ethic. Whistling while he milked cows long before most started their days, he brought to the fields positive energy and great physical strength. In Mexico, however, things were complicated. In order to maximize the country's wheat supply, 
he'd need to ward off a deadly predator, a fungus known as stem rust. Dubbed one of the oldest enemies of the human race, it breeds on mature plants, spreads in the wind, and destroys every wheat plant it touches. It had driven Barlog's own family of farmers out of the wheat business in 1878, and in 1944, it was killing half of Mexico's wheat crops. Borlaug's mission was to produce a variety of wheat resistant to stem rust. And if he was going to alleviate hunger in Mexico, he'd have to produce three to four times as much wheat on the same amount of land. A tall order, and one that would require a lot of manual labor. First, he had to see what Mexico had to offer. He traversed the countryside, collecting various types of local wheat. In 1945, he planted 110,000 seeds to see which could survive. At harvest time, he had just four. Not exactly the results he wanted. Borlaug, however, wasn't one to give up easily. If his wheat survived, people would survive. And that motivator never failed him. To change production so dramatically, he'd have to change the game. Step one, speed up production. Mexico was home to two growing seasons. In the mountains north of Mexico City, Chapingo's elevation was cool enough for a summer growing season. Meanwhile, further north, Sonora's sea level fields provided enough warmth to grow throughout the winter. Borlaug took advantage of both producing wheat in back-to-back -back seasons, an unpopular move that went against conventional wheat-growing wisdom. Scientists thought that seeds needed a rest between harvest and planting to store energy for germination. If that wasn't enough of a deterrent, Borlaug's boss, George Harar, was opposed. But Borlaug sought to get as much out of the seeds as he could, and by shuttle breeding, he could produce two generations of crops in half the time. Reluctantly, Harar agreed to his plan, sort of. Borlaug could transport seeds back and forth, but he'd have no budget, no machinery, and no accommodations. When Borlaug arrived in Sonora with his seeds, he found an abandoned research station. There was no running water or even windows, unless you count broken ones, and the rats scurrying about weren't exactly welcoming. But for now, it was home. In the fields, things were just as challenging. Borlaug didn't have a tractor or a horse. He strapped a plow animal's harness around his own chest and arms and cut furrows in the fields himself. But planting the seeds from his four survivors wouldn't be enough to ensure stem rust resistance. He'd have to crossbreed those seeds with other successful varieties to create perfect wheat, a prolific survivor that would resist the evil fungus. Each day under the blazing Mexico sun, Borlaug walked the fields looking at every wheat plant for brown patches of stem rust. Wheat is self-pollinating, so to cross-pollinate, Borlaug had to stop the self-generating process and then stimulate it to pollinate with another seed. 
One by one, Borlaug cut the female floret at just the right point and removed its pollen so it couldn't self-generate. With a tweezer, often standing on a stool, he went plant by plant, covering the florets with paper to prevent pollen blowing in the breeze from stimulating the plant. Four days later, Borlaug added male pollen into the paper to create a cross-pollinated plant. It was an enormous, some might say ridiculous, amount of work. By hand, Borlaug cross-pollinated the plants day after day to the point of exhaustion. Then he'd return to his bedroll, a sleeping bag-like setup on the floor, wondering if his whole experiment was a huge mistake. But if doubt descended at night, it was diminished during the day by Borlaug's arduous work and attention to detail. By 1948, he knew his labor paid off. He had produced stem-rust-resistant wheat that could grow anywhere, in any season. Best of all, it produced enormous amounts of quality grain. An American doesn't mean... Yeah? Well, being an American is the best thing... Another step in the communist campaign. Soviet bloc troops already have begun massing for war games. To accomplish this, their strategy is to undermine the confidence of our people in the American system and the principles on which it stands. Doing all he can to bury us. We shall be happy when the communist banner shall fly over the whole planet. I'll say so that all American people can hear that the only enemy of peace in the world is communism. Across the globe, the Cold War was gaining momentum and America thought the communist movement was as much about resources as anything else. Food could be pivotal. The Rockefeller Foundation saw Borlaug's work in Mexico as a template for other developing countries and wanted to help Borlaug produce more. The organization gave him a string of American and Mexican scientists and administrators to help in Sonora. Perfect timing in a way, as Borlaug was experiencing problems from too much of his own success. Borlaug wanted prolific wheat, and he achieved that and then some. His wheat plants produced so much grain that their five-foot stems couldn't carry the weight. Entire fields would be taken out by the winds. Once wheat hits the ground, it's no longer viable. Somehow Borlaug had to strengthen the stalk, and he thought the best option was to shrink the plant. Another seemingly impossible task. Dwarf wheat stems from Japan and produces a shorter wheat with a stronger stalk. It doesn't fall over, takes less time to grow, and can be harvested by machines. If he could cross his miracle wheat with dwarf wheat, then he'd have the kind that could grow anywhere, resist stem rust, and stand up to the wind. Borlaug set out to create a semi-dwarf wheat. After seven years and 8,156 crosses, he had it. He had created the complete wheat. The Mexican Hunger Project wasn't just about Mexico anymore. The Rockefeller Foundation knew Borlaug's work had global potential. In 1963, an agricultural scientist, Dr. Swami Nathan, 
who thought that Borlaug's semi-dwarf wheat could help India, invited Borlaug to his homeland. On a three-week road trip through India, they discovered a common goal, to produce enough dwarf wheat to keep up with India's booming population and prevent a looming famine. In India, however, the government couldn't see past the huge investment it would require. Irrigation would have to be built across thousands of square miles. Huge amounts of fertilizer would have to be imported from the U.S., which also raised suspicions about capitalist motives. The Indian government questioned whether Borlaug's style of farming would work on their side of the globe. While the government focused on dollar signs, Borlaug fixated on starvation, which was as visible as the Taj Mahal. People were hungry. Many were dying. Borlaug couldn't take it anymore. Angrily, he pressed government officials. His bullying initially fell on deaf ears. In 1966, however, when the U.S. cut off Food for Peace, a program in which the U.S. would send surplus grains to India, the game changed. Borlaug's wheat was no longer about making Americans richer. It was a means to India's own self-sufficiency. The government began importing fertilizer, built out irrigation, and Boeings loaded with pound upon pound of seeds took off for India. Borlaug taught farmers how to cultivate semi-dwarf wheat in plots that stretched over more than a million acres. Mother Nature did her part as well, sending helpful rains after years of frequent droughts. By 1968, as expected, India's population had doubled. More astonishingly, the country's wheat supply had tripled. Tripled. Grain was everywhere. In New Delhi, grain silos were at capacity. At railroad depots, sacks of grain spilled upon the tracks because there was simply no place else to put them. Schools closed so classrooms could be used to store grain. The 1968 harvest was one and a half times India's record harvest. Borlaug became known as the father of the Green Revolution. By 1970, with the help of the World Bank, his wheat-growing techniques had spread to Pakistan, Turkey, Tunisia, and Morocco, producing rice, corn, and other tiny grains that, like one man, sprung up out of nowhere and saved the world. The statue of Norman Borlaug, the Iowa native and crop researcher who's helped feed millions of people. This new approach of crop breeding, developing semi-dwarf, high-yielding cereals, has escalated into a global effort. Norman Borlaug was responsible for saving more lives than any human being in history. Think about that. You can't build peace on empty stomachs. It's been said that no one has done as much for humanity as Norman Borlaug. And in 1970, his tireless efforts earned him the Nobel Prize. He and his wife Margaret were stationed outside of Mexico City the day she got the call. Right away, she headed out to the wheat fields to find him. Hello, I'm Lori Dillon, your host of Genius Beats Fear. 
Today, we're discussing Dr. Norman Borlaug with Ambassador Kenneth M. Quinn, former president of the World Food Prize Hall of Laureates in Des Moines. Thank you for being here, Kenneth. Well, thank you. So before we really dive into things, how did you come to know Dr. Norman Borlaug? Well, I was hired by the John Ruan family to take over the leadership of the World Food Prize Foundation, which was then located in in Des Moines, Iowa, which Borlaug had started and which the Ruan family had rescued when it was about to go out of existence. I retired from the U.S. State Department, came to Des Moines, Iowa, where I had lived once before, and met Borlaug for the first time there. I met him, and so here he's this distinguished Nobel laureate agricultural bond between Borlaug and me, 1999, was that I had had this experience and we shared the view that you had to have improved roads along with these new miracle seeds that he had developed. We then worked together for 10 years in building the World Food Prize into what he always wanted it to be seen as the Nobel Prize for Food and Agriculture. And um, when, when Borlaug was about to pass away in 2009, and I went to see him in Texas, and he was sort of lapsing in and out of consciousness, and was there, I was holding his hand, and he had a few witting moments, and he squeezed my hand and said, Ken, I'm so grateful and then his voice just trailed off. And that was, those are the last words he ever said to me. But yeah, I think he felt that I had come very close, if not had fulfilled his vision of what he wanted the World Food Prize to be. So it sounds like you weren't only colleagues, you were friends. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. I, I think there are a couple of people who knew Borlaug long, longer and worked with him and uh, and that. But in that last decade of his life, I worked as closely with him as uh, as anyone who's who's still alive. So, what was Dr. Borlaug's original mission with the World Food Prize? So, when Borlaug received the Nobel Peace Prize in 1970 for starting the Green Revolution, he said, oh, they gave me the peace prize because there's no prize for agriculture, and there should be. And he went to the Nobel Committee and said, you need to have a prize for agriculture and get one started right away. So they had to sort of gently turn him away uh, and say, well, you know, we don't have the money. It's not in Alfred Nobel's will. So, you know, being a a determined, phlegmatic Norwegian, Borlaug just kept looking around and pushing the idea and and finally gets uh, introduced to General Foods by a man named Carlton Smith. Uh, And Smith uh, was someone who did a lot of interesting things in the uh, aftermath of World War II. He saved you know, musical score, historic musical scores and manuscripts in Europe. And he helped introduce people who had ideas for prizes 
uh, two sponsors. He knew all these celebrities, and he was from a small town in Illinois. He once brought Marilyn Monroe to his hometown in Illinois, caused a great stir. And um, so it got formed in 1986. First prize was given in 87, and it's going along nicely. And then there's a corporate takeover and restructuring. And I think Philip Morris, which owned Kraft, bought General Foods. And well, here's a way we can save uh, $500,000, which is how much General Foods was putting into it here, $200,000 prize. And they, in 1989, said, well, you know, we're, we're not doing this anymore. And uh, John Ruan, the self-made uh, multimillionaire uh, trucker, uh, in any case, the uh, Des Moines Chamber of Commerce organized a meeting. They show up in Des Moines, Borlaug and Ruan meet. The uh, state legislature puts in a little money because John Ruan is the most uh, influential Republican. Uh, the Democrats uh, were in charge of the legislature, and they, of course, wanted to be good friends with John Ruan so, uh, in those days and put up the money. World Food Prize has been in Des Moines ever since. But it was just kind of putting along. And then uh, I showed up. I got hired. Said, well, I'm going to give it my best shot. And so I took steps to make it look like a Nobel Prize and uh, have a ceremony. Uh, I went to the governor, said, we have the ceremony in the state capitol because if you look uh, uh, up on you know Google or images of the state capitol, it looks like it would be in Oslo or Stockholm, you know, 19th century, very distinguished building. And people are, are blown away. And we're the only ones, World Food Prize, have a ceremony in the state capitol every year. And the great story is Norman Borlaug is beloved by Republicans and Democrats. So even in the most hostile, acrimonious political moments, Democrats and Republicans all stop and cheer for Norman Borlaug. He received the Congressional Gold Medal with uh, George W. Bush, Harry Reid, and Nancy Pelosi, and Borlaug, all their arms wrapped around each wow. other. Yeah, and when his statue was unveiled, uh, you know, it was uh, Boehner, Mitch McConnell, Pelosi, and Reid all sitting there uh, together, making nice. <laughs> that, that's one thing they can all agree on. Yes, it's, it is. Perhaps it's one of the very, very few things, but it's what unites Iowans is what Borlaug was all about, ameliorating human suffering and feeding hungry people. That's great. And those were the goals of the World Food Prize Foundation. So... Tell us a little about Norman Borlaug as a person. Was he easy to get along with? He was very easy uh, to get along with. He's very humble, not a self-promoter um, in, in any way. I was stunned when I came back to Iowa in 1999 to find out how few Iowans knew who he was, even though he'd won the Nobel Peace Prize. And uh, he was better known in uh, India than Iowa. You know, I, I said, if I don't do anything else, I'm going to make Norman Borlaug into Iowa's greatest hero that he deserves to be. 
So in all the history of our country, there's only three Americans who have the Nobel Peace Prize, the Congressional Gold Medal, and the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And they are uh, Elie Wiesel, the Holocaust survivor, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and that farm boy from Howard County in Northeast Iowa, Norman Borlaug. But Borlaug loved students. He was a teacher. He, he had the greatest respect for poor farmers. And uh, we have uh, at the World Food Prize this most wonderful youth program for high school students. And it was very small when I came, only about 15 or 20 students all from Iowa uh, in a year. Now it impacts up to 10,000 students a year from all over the US and several foreign countries. And it brings students from China and from Mexico and from the Netherlands and Sweden and uh, Nigeria. But Borlaug would call me up uh, he was, you know, outside, because he was usually outside Iowa. Uh, Borlaug would call up and, and he either asked, you know, how's the weather? Because farmers always ask about how's the weather. And, or he'd say, how are those young students doing? And he particularly was interested in the young 16, 17, 18-year-olds that we sent out every summer to work at international agricultural research centers around the world. So we'd pluck uh, these high school juniors, seniors. In the beginning, it was even a few sophomores, but uh, they got, that got to be too young after 9-11. And we'd send them off to work in, uh, in Kenya or you know, Mexico, three or four different places in China. And they worked at internationally renowned research centers, essentially, kind of an adult experience. And it's incredibly transformative and inspiring. Uh, so now some of the earliest ones, they're in their mid thirties now, it's 20 years ago. And they are, you know, they're doctors and they're PhDs. They're, there's one of them uh, is a chef uh, in, in New York who's uh, written books um, the uh, called Son of a, a Southern Chef. Uh, they have infectious disease uh, doctors and researchers. They, it's just amazing. And to 70, I'd say 70% of all the participants in our youth programs over all these years are always young women. That's great. So Dr. Borlaug, when he was working on the Mexico Project, and then later when he would work in India, this is spanning a long time from the 1940s till the later 1960s. Can you just talk about his physical strength at that time? I know he was an athlete and he grew up as a farmer. When I was reading about his work developing the semi-dwarf grain, that work sounded physically draining, as if you had to have some superhuman strength to do it, particularly in Mexico, when he wasn't given any machines in the Sonora area. So Borlaug was filled with determination. And he would tell you that he learned the determination 
as a wrestler in high school and college. And he attributed this to his wrestling coach at Cresco High School in uh, Howard County, Iowa, named Dave Bartlema. And Bartlema was, as in wrestling, you know, never, never give up and never, ever let yourself be pinned. Struggle, struggle, keep your shoulder off the mat. Bartlema then is hired as the first wrestling coach at the University of Minnesota that Borlaug loved dearly. After Borlaug passed away, I was invited to Minnesota and I gave an address um, uh, in his honor. And I said, uh, you know, I'm from Iowa and we consider the only mistake Borlaug made in life was going to the University of Minnesota. And they all laughed and, and, I, and I, I said, uh, and of course, Borlaug loved the University of Minnesota, would always be wearing his University of Minnesota jacket. This determination that Borlaug learned and stayed with him to never give up is what I believe sustained him, particularly in those early years when he didn't have the support. And he was out working and trying to convince Mexican farmers that he had this approach to producing new seeds and a new approach to agriculture. The Ruan family and the World Food Prize supported a video that Iowa Public Television made about Borlaug. And in it, Borlaug talked about this feeling of frustration he had. Being in Mexico, he couldn't speak the language very well. And he said, you know, I thought I could never do anything. I thought I could never produce results. And he was in the poorest parts of the country and working with very poor farmers. But he kept at it, kept at it and even pulled the plow himself when they didn't even have a horse to pull the plow to to turn the soil. That's amazing. And also considering his success, the wheat too, it would take a long time to see if he would have the results. So if he was having doubts, it wasn't like tomorrow he would know that it worked. He would have to wait years. So his, yes, he, he did his shuttle breeding that is to be able to do one crop in northern Mexico when it was warm enough there, and then in the winter, move to southern Mexico and do a second crop there. That cut the time in half for trying to do with traditional breeding. There was no genetic modification. This all had to be done in very traditional ways of trying to take wheat seeds from one place and wheat seeds from another and as they say in science, cross them, marry them up, cross fertilize them, and try to produce new offspring that would have the uh, positive traits of both of the parent seeds. And he's trying this and doing it. And finally, Borlaug produces very tall and, and, and fairly high yielding wheat. 
but it's so tall and there's so much grain on the wheat that it would fall over. The plants couldn't stand up. Their, their legs, their, their stems, weren't strong enough to hold them up. And this, for whatever reason, is called lodging. And so this was frustration after frustration. So let's just look at Mexico for a second and what he was dealing with. First, it sounds like he had a difficult boss in Harar. And he was away from his family, his wife for part of it. He had to drive back and forth between the north and the south. And he was living in horrible conditions in an abandoned research structure. And not only was he performing draining physical labor every day in the Mexican sun, he was doing what it sounded like to me was just super tedious work, just stem after stem of cross-pollinating and cross-pollinating, cross-pollinating. And he endured that all at the same time and for a long time. He, he, he did indeed. Of the, the stories, this, of course, that I you know, would read about or I heard about from a few others, but these accounts were so incredible of how much he worked and how dedicated he was. And I think, knowing Norm as I did, hearing him tell stories as I heard him tell, that it was one part that Norwegian, Iowa, Minnesota determination one part, that wrestler, I'm not going to be pinned. And, and one part, this humanitarian who was so motivated by seeing people hungry, suffering, in poverty, and that he wanted to lift them up. That kept him uh, doing this and kept him believing in the science. You know, Borlaug was a plant pathologist. His initial training was in how do you defeat diseases that are attacking wheat, and particularly something called rust disease. And he wanted to produce new varieties of wheat, new wheat seeds, that would be able to produce more grain and resist disease wanted to eliminate rust disease and he had been inspired to be a plant pathologist by a professor at the University of Minnesota. In fact, Norman Borlaug didn't start out to be a wheat scientist at all. I mean, he's from Iowa. No wheat in Iowa, all corn. You know, when Henry Wallace met him in Mexico, he said, what's a good Iowa boy like you doing working on wheat? when he should be working on corn. But Borlaug was going to be a forester, and he studied as an undergraduate to get a degree in forestry, was offered a job in the U.S. Forest Service, which he accepted. And then, and he, so he married his girlfriend, fiance, became his wife. They're getting ready to go off and work in the Forest Service. He had done and there was a problem in the U.S. Department of Agriculture budget appropriation. He told me the story how he gets a letter 
that says your your job is going to be delayed. So he tells his poor wife she has to go back to work in the coffee shop and waiting on tables. And he goes to a lecture at night by a professor named Evan Stakeman. And Stakeman talks about rust disease. Now, rust disease are these little mites that crawl around, and I guess they, you know, will lay their eggs and destroy wheat, uh, forests and trees and wheat. Uh, and Stakeman is like a detective about how do you find the mites and how do you eliminate them. And Borlaug is sitting there, as he describes it to me, and he's fascinated by Stakeman and so intrigued that when Stakeman finishes his lecture and leaves and is walking down the hall, Borlaug tells me, he said, I ran after him. And I said, I, I want to be in your program. I want to do, uh, study how to do this. Uh, I want to be in your graduate program and for a PhD. And Stakeman says, come to see me tomorrow. He goes to see Stakeman. Stakeman agrees to accept him into the program. And then Norm goes home and explains to his poor wife, Margaret, that he's giving up the job at USDA and he's going to be, get a PhD in plant pathology at the University of Minnesota. And that's how he goes from being a forester to uh, working on wheat and ends up in Mexico. Did he ever talk to you about his time in Mexico, about how he felt when he was there? or about the challenges he faced? Well, yes, yes. Well, I mean, he talked about, he thought it was impossible. He thought he would not, said, I thought I could never do anything. I thought I was never going to be able to do anything in Mexico. It seemed so impossible. Do you think he was surprised by his own success there? I don't know if surprised is the right word, but I think, I think, that he so believed in not giving up and determination that when he finally got there and had success, that he was thrilled and exhilarated. But his belief was that it was not only the hard work and don't give up, but it was the science. So what really ended up making him successful in Mexico was his connection to some other scientists and particularly a man named Ezra Vogel at the University of Washington. And Vogel was a plant scientist who had some connections and he had some connections to scientists who were in the United States Army that was occupying Japan at the end of World War II. So Douglas MacArthur, wanting to get the uh, Japanese economy going, he, uh, one part was agriculture, so he looked around in his military command and said, who's got agricultural degrees from land-grant universities? And he found a few and sent them out around Japan trying to spur some agricultural improvements. 
And they go to a place, these military officers slash agricultural scientists end up in a place in Iwate Prefecture where they meet scientists who has something that they've never seen before, which is dwarf wheat. And they're so fascinated by the dwarf wheat that they ask him for some seeds, which he shares with them. The seeds are called Norin 10, number 10. They, as has been the case for hundreds of years, share seeds back to the United States with other scientists. Some go to Vogel. Borlaug hears about these. He asks Vogel if he, Borlaug, can have some of the Norin 10. The Norin 10 seeds are sent to Borlaug. He takes them to Mexico. He plants them, grows them, and takes the seed that they produce on the plants and crosses them with his chipotle varieties that he had been developing, these tall varieties. And the semi-dwarf wheat infuses the strong legs, the strong stems, into uh, Borlaug's Mexican varieties. And they produce this new high-yielding disease-resistant wheat that doesn't fall over. And it's this miracle. It's this miracle. And uh, Borlaug, uh, you know, described that the Mexican farmers who planted it, and they had this amazing yield and a surplus crop, and they suddenly are in much stronger and better economic position as a result of this. And they, they hold a celebration and music playing and songs and celebrating, and Borlaug is their hero. He is the person who worked hard with them, side by side with them, cared about them, and then through science delivers to them this miracle wheat. So how did he feel when he saw that his crossbreeding and his plan had worked, that he indeed produced this? So Borlaug, as I said, he was, he was humble. And, but I think he was taken with, the exhilarated by what had happened, that it all had come together and produced the dramatic results that he thought could be possible. And so now he has this following of young Mexican students and graduate students and young scientists who are working with him and this you know, makeshift research center, which would later become CIMIT, International Center for the Improvement of Wheat and Maize, located in Mexico, now one of the largest and most distinguished agricultural research facilities in the world, but it's the start of that. And there are pictures of Borlaug with these young professionals, these Mexican scientists who are following this lead, this breakthrough of what is possible. And so the farmers in, in Sonora had this long felt debt to him 
I, I went there right after he passed away. The newspapers, this is the local provincial newspaper, that big headline on the front page, you know, Borlaug dead. Uh, I was, how could it be that some, you know, some gringo, you know, some Yankee, but when he passes away, that his name is emblazoned in, you know, large, double, triple sized print on the front page of their newspaper. And the farmers, the farmers put in the money to pay for his statue to be erected. And uh, so I was there. They had the maquette of the statue that was going to be put up. And I, it just struck me as so incredible. Uh, he, he, he touched people uh, for an American in a way that almost no one else could. Maybe, there may be doctors who do you know, miracle cures or others, uh, foreigners who come to countries and earn a special hallowed place. But oh my, what to actually go there and see the response to Borlaug I mean, so this is 2009, 2010, and he had begun going there in the mid-40s uh, and his work in Mexico to be so honored out in a province and the country honored him so much. I know Norman Borlaug was schooled in science, and he believed in science, and he applied science to the wheat in Mexico and then in India. He also worked so hard. I mean, when I read about his work, it just seemed, as I said before, just superhuman. Those long days of physically grueling work and then all the minutiae with the crossbreeding. I wanted to ask, do you think his success stems more from brilliance or from having such a hard work ethic? I think you know, to be, to be, to be careful and never denigrate in any way his intellectual acumen and, and his vision about seeds, the, and, and how you could through science produce higher yielding seeds. But if you were to remove that commitment, that never give up attitude, that hard work, that never uh, shy away from the goal, Norman Borlaug would not have been the Nobel Peace Prize laureate. He would not have been seen as the father of the Green Revolution, in my opinion. There would not be a World Food Prize. In this podcast, we look at people like Dr. Norman Borlaug, who have literally changed history and change the way we live. And that is such a common trait. Even when he's doing that minutiae of the crossbreeding in the fields, he never loses sight of the big picture that people are starving, yes. that people need food, absolutely, and that there is a bigger calling to his work. And he never gives up. He's just never deterred. And I see that in other people who have done game-changing work. It's just a really interesting quality. Borlaug was not hesitant about speaking directly 
and even bluntly to very senior world leaders. And uh, when he went in to see, you know, the prime minister of India and then the president of Pakistan and, you know, the ministers of agriculture who were taking him in were kind of nervous. Oh, you know, you're coming, you know, he's dressed, uh, you know, rather informally like he's out, you know, working in the fields. And what, what's he going to say? But it was, I think, that willingness to be direct and speak frankly, not impolitely, but speak frankly, that political leaders were willing to stake their future, their reputations on what he was advocating. When you think about, you know, India and Pakistan were facing dramatic potential loss. And he's saying, well, you got to change the whole system. You have to, uh, you know, use fertilizer and you have to have more irrigation. You got to use these new seeds. Change not just the seeds, you have to change your whole approach to agriculture. Wow, that's a big step. He, he did the same thing when he went to China. Uh, and he got to meet with in the very early 70s. You know, uh, at the time of ping pong diplomacy, there's also agricultural diplomacy. Borlaug's one of the first people to go there. And he tells uh, Zhou Enlai and Deng Xiaoping, you've got to build fertilizer plants. You know, if you want to have produce more food, here's what you have to do. And so Norman Borlaug was a hero, is a hero to this day in Iran. And they were holding an event totally to honor him. So I said, of course you can, but, you know, the Iranians buying things in America next to impossible. It is impossible. They can't bank transfers. So, um, but they said they were going ahead with this conference and they invited me to come and speak. And so I went to Iran with my wife uh, and uh, I'm the only former senior State Department official ever invited to Iran to give a talk. And I showed up at their institute and they had a mullah there representing the Grand Ayatollah the Minister of Agriculture, there are like 400 Iranian scientists all there. And I gave this talk about how Iran and America could cooperate through biotechnology. And working together, we could fulfill Norman Borlaug's most passionate and ardent wish, that using biotechnology, somehow you could take the gene out of the rice plant because rice is never affected by rust disease, transplant it into wheat and eliminate the scourge of rust disease that had so devastated American crops, Indian crops, Pakistani crops, Egyptian crops, and Iranian crops. And I said, imagine American and Iranian scientists walking in together to receive the World Food Prize and People from all over the world are standing and cheering for what scientists did together. Which is Dr. Borlaug's legacy, peace through agriculture. So I just have one more question. I know there are a lot of criticisms of the Green Revolution. It's been attacked for causing environmental damage, the overuse of fertilizers and pesticides, and causing pollution. 
What do you think Norman Borlaug's response would be to that? Well, I, I think the response would be twofold. One, people, including people in India, who criticize what he did in the 1960s in India and, and elsewhere, would ha- he would say, well, would you rather have all of those people starved to death? Would you rather have hundreds of millions of people go without food and go hungry? Because that's what would have happened without the breakthroughs of the World Food Prize. The second thing he would say is that he believes very much in science and that the science as it has been developed and seen and that the amounts of pesticides that might be used, amounts of fertilizer that were used, the diminished water supplies are very serious issues which have to be addressed. And Borlaug was a big supporter of what you would call precision agriculture. He would be at the forefront of saying, well, we need to use, develop irrigation systems so that just small amounts of water are used at the time a seed is germinating so that it has the water when it needs it. That the fertilizer can be placed plant by plant rather than spread over the entire crop the way it has been done in the past because these are necessary if we are going to be able to produce uh, all the food we need to produce. And he would say the greatest challenge human beings have ever confronted is whether we will be able to feed the 9 to 10 billion people who will be on our planet by the you know year 2050. Will we be able to sustainably produce enough nutritious food and distribute it so that everyone has enough food, not only to survive, but to lead a a safe and productive life and develop to their full human potential? Criticisms aren't entirely fair because they came at a time where we had no idea what we know now. Yes. And now we have more access to more technology, more equipment, more technology than certainly Borlaug yes. had at the time and in the places where he was working. Yes. And, and there is also criticism directed at large seed companies, you know, their business practices such that they are hurting small farmers. Oh, I've I've been to India when some of those protests have been going on. India is a free place with a vibrant press and protests will draw large, large crowds. And that's why it's important for those who work by science to try to be calm and to address issues based on the science. I tried to bring the critics and the proponents together at the Borlaug Dialogue, which is what our symposium uh, at the World Food Prize in Des Moines is called each year, which was described by Sir Gordon Conway, one of the leading experts in the world, as the premier conference in the world on global agriculture. It was the place, the World Food Prize, in 2009, 
one month after Norman Borlaug passed away, that Bill Gates came to launch his multi-billion dollar global initiative to eradicate poverty, uplift Africa, uplift smallholder farmers out of poverty, and he did it at the World Food Prize in Des Moines. Dr. Norman Borlaug had plenty of reasons to call it quits over the years. The work itself was grueling, physical and tedious. At times, he had little to no support, and he even struggled to get backing from the government in a country he was fighting desperately to help. Yet he never did throw in the towel. Maybe he had never heard the words, genius beats fear, but he was certainly living proof of it. Thank you for a wonderful discussion, Kenneth. I'm Lori Dillon, your host of Genius Beats Fear, brought to you by Cross Border Solutions. This podcast was written and executive produced by Mary Lynn Mitchum-Strom. The audio of this podcast was produced by Matthew DeMello, with editing and musical contributions by Andrew O'Donnell. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You don't have to be a genius to see why that makes sense. We'll be back next week with more stories about brilliant leaders and innovators whose game-changing contributions are real-life proof that genius always beats fear. Fear.